I'm Brian Walsh, and from Impact Alpha, this is Returns on Investment, a show about impact investing. The question would be framed, uh, is there a trade-off between returns and impact? And you'd have some people say yes, and you have some people say no, and others say yes and no, and back and forth you went. And this was troubling to us because we thought it would hinder the development of the market. We thought it was missing the fundamental point, which is it really depends. That's Matt Bannock, former managing partner of a Meteor Network. He's discussing the subject of our special series of returns on investment called Beyond Trade-Offs, Investing Across the Returns Continuum. Produced by Impact Alpha in collaboration with the Meteor Network, Beyond Trade-Offs will take a look at those investors who have moved past the idea that impact investing necessarily requires an expectation for a concessional or lower risk-adjusted financial return. Instead, these investors have found ways to integrate their financial goals with their social and environmental impact objectives optimizing for all. Impact Alpha's editor, David Bank, has been talking with institutional investors, family offices, foundations, and fund managers to better understand how their experiences might be helpful to others developing integrated impact investment strategies. In this first episode, David talks with Matt Bannock and his colleague Robin Steffen, Omidyar's Director of Impact Investing. They discuss how Omidyar got beyond trade-offs in their own investment portfolio and offer a preview of the rest of the series. Let's jump right in. Hi, I'm here with Matt Bannock and Robin Steffen of the Omidyar Network. Welcome, Matt, and welcome, Robin. Hi, David. Thank Great you, to David. be here. Great to have you uh, with us. So I want to just put it to both of you. What does lie beyond trade-offs? Matt? Yeah, I think uh, I'd come back to the title of our series, which is uh, Investing Across the Returns Continuum. I think there are tremendous opportunities there. And I want to also put in a, a subheader, if you will, uh, which is all about aligning expectations for risk, return, and impact. Great. So, so the the spectrum and 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 aligning aligning expectations, Robin. I think that's exactly right. I also think once we move beyond trade offs, we can really mobilize all types of capital for complex challenges, which are the ones that we most need to tackle around the world. Great. So we we've we've laid the table here um, very nicely for both this conversation and also for the series as a whole. And I think let's just jump right in. I, I, I want folks to know, first of all, who, who you two are as individuals. And then I also want to know a little bit more about the Omidyar Network. So Matt, I know you've been, uh, you were at the helm of the Omidyar Network for, I think, uh, 11 years, but uh, have recently transitioned. So let us know what you're up to. Yeah, I'm actually uh, had, a, had a fabulous uh, run at the Omidyar Network and um, it was rather busy. So I've decided to take a little bit of time off before I figure out what I want to do next. And you're up in Seattle, where, where I think you live, right? That's right. I was born and raised up here and uh, enjoying spending time with family. In fact, mom is turning 95 on Saturday, so that'll oh. be a lot of fun. Great. Happy birthday to her. And Robin, you're, I think, running the Impact Investing um, project now at Omidyar. I am. And you know, our top priority really at the moment in, on the field building front is to make it easier for investors to navigate Impact Investing's big tent. So this is a great conversation to be having with you, and I appreciate your leadership in, in curating the, the series. Thank you for that. Um, the, 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 the series, you know, sort of looks at other investors, but let's just lay on the table, you know, Omidyar as an investor, um, and you guys are at some level, you know, one of the original or sort of pioneer impact investors. Tell us just a little bit about the portfolio and how you guys think about it. Yeah, uh, let me go back a little bit in, in history, David, here, and explain a little bit how we got to this point where we are today and specifically uh, why we felt it helpful to put out the ideas that 
uh, are in the, the article around investing across the returns continuum. Um, when I initially joined Omidyar Net Network after uh, working with Pierre for, for eight years at eBay, we invested just in, um, in we, we typically invest early stage in organizations, both for-profit and not-for-profit, that we think have the potential for to scale up massively and to have huge impact in the world. And we invested about $1.5 billion over, the, over those first um, uh, 11 or 12 years, roughly split between for-profit and not-for-profit investments, roughly 50-50. Now, when we initially started out, we said, okay, we will, we will provide grants and we will invest. But when we invest, we will only invest in businesses that we think are going to generate risk-adjusted returns. And we did that because we felt that if you started loosening the constraints on returns, you may invite sloppy investments, and you may end up potentially distorting markets. What we found, however, when we engaged, particularly when we engaged in emerging markets, was that if, in fact, you wanted to get markets going for, for positive social impact, sometimes you had to take either outsized risks or you had to accept somewhat lower returns in service to impact. There might be markets where that you really feel you can have tremendous impact with investments, but those investments may not completely pencil out from a returns perspective. And David, we can look at a, a segment I think you're familiar with, which is uh, solar lighting. And uh, that's an area, for example, where we invested in a company called D-Light, which really pioneered solar lighting and helped accelerate that market by many years. But when we invested, we didn't expect risk-adjusted returns. We expected that they would help pioneer the market, that others would come in and accelerate the development of the market, accelerate the impact. So that was an example of where we said, hey, you know what? Maybe we shouldn't just live in this bifurcated world of risk-adjusted returns investments or grants. Maybe there's some compelling ideas of where we can invest across a continuum of returns. And then over the last, since we kind of came to that insight, of course, to make the decisions around when we will invest expecting risk-adjusted returns, and when we would be willing to provide some form of concessionary capital, we had to develop a framework so that we can make appropriate decisions within the Omidyar network. And the framework we developed is precisely the framework that you see captured in the article across the returns continuum. So what, what it emerged really from practical experience of trying to figure out if you are focused on impact and if you have the ability to invest with grants and investments, how do you come to making the best decisions in service to that impact? So it's called the Omidyar Network, and I think it's a, a network of different entities. Can you just describe the, 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 the actual structure? Yeah, the structure, you're correct. We have both an LLC uh, and a 5013C. So the LLC enables us to uh, invest on a pure for-profit basis, and the 501C3 enables us to invest in grants making institute or as a grant making institution by the way one could also do through what are called program related investments and mission related investments for profit investments out of a foundation but we created that llc and the foundation in order to give us maximum flexibility in investing across this continuum so those are legal structures but really at the media network we're organized as one single entity and our investment professionals are tasked with investing across this continuum of returns against a sector-specific strategy. So they have those tools of grants and for-profit investments to apply as they it to execute against their strategy. 
And just to get back to what you were saying about these more catalytic investments, maybe earlier stage or higher risk where you're not expecting risk-adjusted market rate of returns, are those done out of the LLC or are those done on the grant-making side? Uh, it depends uh, whether we see them as possibly program-related investments or mission-related investments. But they are typically, I think you would look, if you looked at statistically, those would typically be made out of the LLC. Most of our for-profit investments are, in fact, made out of the LLC. And I think it's worth noting, actually, this LLC structure, and, and as you guys pioneered it, has now been adopted by a number of other folks like Pierre your, and, and Pam, your, your founders, are come out of a more tech uh, Silicon Valley kind of approach. There's a number of these now, isn't that right? There are. It, is, it has become a kind of popular mode of engagement. And one of the, one of the things that we have talked about a lot at Omidyar Network over the years is that you figure out what problem you're trying to address and then apply the appropriate tools. So the LLC is a, is a tool that enables people to address underlying issues or support the development of, of certain things that they really care about. Um, so the, it's, it's an enabler, but the critical thing is understanding what one wants to accomplish in the world and then ensure that one has the right tools, be they grant making or, or investing tools to, to kind of have that impact that you desire. So you guys come at this as investors yourselves and with different kinds of capital, as you've explained, to be able to invest. Why did you think it was important to engage other investors as well to think about impact investments? Well, one of the things I think that emerged for us that was a little troubling is that as we saw the uh, broad sector of impact investing evolve, um, we saw a lot of conversation around this, whether in fact there's a trade-off um, uh, between financial returns and impact. In other words, some, some felt that, hey, uh, in order to have impact in the areas we care about, we will always have to accept a concessionary return. Uh, others who are, care deeply about social impact were saying, no, 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 no. there is no trade-off between social impact and financial returns. And so it was this rather stale debate that you saw played out again and again, where, some, where, where the, the, the question would be framed uh, is there a trade-off between returns and impact? And you'd have some people say yes, and you have some people say no, and the others say yes and no, and back and forth you went. And this was troubling to us because we thought it would uh, hinder the development of the market. We thought it was missing the fundamental point, which is it really depends, you know, whether there is in fact trade-offs, whether you in fact have to offer concessionary returns for a particular investment really depends upon what you're trying to accomplish. And we felt that there are a number of areas in which there is no trade-off between financial return and social impact, where you can actually have a great return and a great social impact. And in fact, if you're generating a great return, that means the company is profitable and successful and can scale up and impact many, many more people. So that's terrific, right? And we call these, by the way, our, our A investments. On the other hand, we recognize that it is also true that you can have huge impact um, frequently by investing in areas where there is a lot of risk, areas where you need the market to be, have, to be accelerated somewhat, where investors are not coming in because they don't see that short-term financial return. And for some folks out there, uh, and this is particularly true in, a, in emerging markets, but also true in markets in the, in the developed world, some investors are willing to take that risk in order to kind of kickstart that market and get it going. The other investors can come in. Um, and we felt that that was actually a, a really useful uh, approach because um, there is relatively sparse capital in that area, what we call the, the B investments or sub-commercial investments. But if those investments can kickstart a market, then that market can have 
much bigger impact than any individual firm. So what we are trying to say is, let's move beyond the stale debate of yes or no, and let's have a robust discussion about the conditions under which one should expect risk-adjusted returns and the conditions under which one probably needs to consider sub-commercial capital in order to get a market going. And I'll just jump in there and say that, you know, the reason why we were so concerned about this tired and troubling debate around whether or not there's a trade-off is that we actually see that it has a big impact on the market. Um, we see that if, you know, the market is painted as all concessionary, that it scares off market rate seeking capital. If it's painted as all commercial, then those who have the flexibility to be able to do catalytic capital are um, are afraid that they're going to be the kind of quintessential good person doing bad deals. And it generates com tremendous confusion about what impact investing means and confused capital stays on the sidelines. It decides to wait it out. So that's the context against which we saw that this debate was really holding us back. And in many ways, I think that the, the investment framework that was introduced in Across the Returns Continuum ended up being a little bit sticky because there was this hunger for another way to think about the impact investing market. It was, an, in a way, an antidote to that debate. You guys have left me no choice here because I, I knew we were going to run into this problem of having a visual aid for, a, for an audio medium. And so I want to point list to a infographic that you guys have prepared, which is on our website and I think on your website as well, that lays out what you're calling these A investments, B investments, and then C investments actually are grants where there's no expectations of returns. But the just to just to situate our, our, our listeners, that there's even a subdivisions between between A1 and A2 um, on the commercial side. Um, uh, market validated and, and not yet validated. And then on the sub-commercial sides, which I think is what you've been talking about as more of the catalytic, um, or riskier, possibly longer-term investments, um, those are the B investments, there's there's B1 and B2 from, from positive returns to, to simple capital preservation. So um, folks want to know what, what you're talking about when you talk about A and B and, and sort of who fits into what, um, uh, there's a great uh, uh, tool for them, and, and thank you for that. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just jump in and, um, and say a couple words about, I think, some of the, the themes that jump out, you know, as listeners begin to engage um, with the visual. You know, there's obviously seeing the impact investment market in all of its richness across the entire returns continuum, which just in and of itself gives you, the, uh, you know, essentially a map of what the market looks like. But there's also in terms of looking down and coming back to your conversation, David, about you know, why did we decide to do Beyond Trade-Offs as a series? Why did we kind of bring together these different types of investors? And if you look, at, you know, at the visual and on the kind of the left-hand side are the are the set of authors that each penned a piece um, in the Beyond Trade-Off series that we published last fall. And it's a really broad and diverse set of investors. It ranges from institutional investors like Prudential Financial, foundations like Ford and Gates, family offices like Blue Haven Initiative, asset managers and advisors like imprint with, within Goldman Sachs. And, um, and what's you know, really quite striking and one of the things that we heard coming out of uh, across the returns continuum is that these investors from all corners of the market really shared a set of fundamental beliefs about the impact investing market. And, and you know, core to that is this idea that there is a broad range of viable impact investment profiles, some of which involve a choice, between impact or financial return, and some of which do not. And so you actually see, as you look at 
um, you know, this visual that there's multiple investors, different types of investors that have actually already moved beyond this trade-off debate and are investing at multiple points along a returns continuum that they're, you know, and then they're sharing in the series, um, you know, savvy investors like Ford and Blue Haven and Prudential are sharing the market segments where they can and do achieve substantial impact alongside market rate returns, but also the market segments where they can't and where the impact they seek forces them to accept greater risk, longer time horizons or lower returns. And that's despite the fact that they're investing across different asset classes, different social issues, different geographies, and they come to the impact investing market with starkly distinct mandates. And so that diversity still you know, shares these fundamental principles about what the impact investing market looks like, um, which are really powerful in terms of where the, the field is headed. I think one of the things that's powerful about about the both the graphic but also the underlying articles in the and the, in the podcast that we've that we've done is that it's not just a theoretical question that actually folks are doing these investments and have their own track records their own their own experiences now of um, not just thinking thinking it <laughs> through but actually making these kinds of investments um, uh, as you say and, and and understanding what what should fall into one, what bucket. And then secondly, that folks have gone through a process where they've decided and, and determined, you know, sort of just who they are in this in this field um, and what what kinds of capital they are deploying and, and what their own uh, expectations and, and, and requirements are. And that that evolves over time. Right. So one of the stories that I love from the Beyond Trade Up series is is from Vishal of Loop Capital. And he, you know, as you know, tells the story of the moment when TIAA, as an institutional investor, came into his second microfinance fund back in 2009. And he, you know, he says, don't mistake this celebrated data point for the impact investing market as a whole. You know, I've been I can tell you that at the beginning, emerging market financial inclusion funds were not viewed as commercial bets. That was really the result of, you know, grant-funded capacity building, early bets by DFIs, path-breaking policy reforms. And by the way, you know, the returns that we could deliver for financial inclusion funds are proving really out of reach as we turn to less ripe market segments like last mile education and health in rural India. And so for me, I think that this piece of the, you know, the, the edge um, of these market segments moves over time um, is also an important part of the story because it means that what's happening now in the sub-commercial or catalytic capital market segments is, is helping to de-risk um, and make possible a, a much more robust and mature pipeline for those investors that really are constrained to seek risk-adjusted market rate returns, given given who they are and where they come from. So let's let's take this piece by piece. Um, there's an increasing number and variety of investors who are looking for impact in a variety of ways. And one of the things, as we said, is they are finding uh, products and financial vehicles for market rate investments. And not just not just you know venture stage startups, but also you know various kinds of fixed income and other kinds of of investments. Um, what are you guys seeing in the development of that part of the market, the risk adjusted market rate part of the market? I, you know, I think that it's really compelling what we hear from Omid at Prudential, who penned a piece for Beyond Trade Ops, where he, after their two and a half billion dollar impact investing portfolio, he said quote, our experience is proof that it's possible to incorporate impact strategies with the norms and constraints faced by institutional investors, end quote. And, you know, and this is, 
I think this is what's changing the market at this moment in time where you're seeing this influx um, of new entrants is because the the, the doubts or the concerns that the impact investing can't ever achieve risk-adjusted market returns is actually giving way. And in fact, new data and new work is increasingly demonstrating that not only in the right instances can financial returns and impact go hand in hand, but in some instances, as you know, the impact capital managers uh, put forward in their new piece, you can actually see that the, the pursuit of impact objectives might even enhance financial performance. There are some investment theses that they, and they've, they've done a good job of enumerating them where the impact thesis itself does generate at least market rate returns, if not as say market beating returns. You know, there's some sort of counterintuitive affordable housing being a very stable asset class in real estate. And they found a number of those kinds of examples where you can have your cake and eat it too. Right. And as per the previous story that I shared from Vishal in India, uh, you know, I think it's no surprise, it's no coincidence that the Ford Foundation, when it did its commitment for, you know, a billion dollars from its endowment towards mission-related investments, that the two sectors it started in were U.S. affordable housing and global financial inclusion. And that's because those sectors had been de-risked over many, many years. They were mature. Um, they were capable of absorbing large um, volume of, of capital. Um, and um, And so, you know, that's fantastic. And you know, we see as we look across the portfolios that especially for those who are, you know, playing in private markets, that one of the themes that um, is really prominent is, is around uh, the idea of looking for business models where the impact is really embedded in the business model, such that you can see financial return and impact grow together. And we'll just stop there for a second, because that's something that has been, you know, very much a part of our investment thesis as well. And so, you know, want to want to give Matt a chance to jump in if he'd like to. Yeah, just a couple of thoughts. One of the reasons we like A investments is that it enables the business that you're supporting to scale up massively and to extend the impact. And to Robin's point, to the extent you're offering, a, the businesses are offering a product or service that has impact embedded in the business model, more, more profits can mean more capital, can mean more scale, can mean more impact. So it's a, it's a fabulous story. Um, I think it's also appropriate for us to call out a couple of the critiques about what we call the A investments, where you're expecting risk-adjusted returns. And one of the more prominent ones is this question of additionality. And it really hinges around the assertion that, hey, any particular investment is going to generate risk-adjusted returns. It's going to attract enough capital, even without investors who are particularly interested in impact. So what's new here? Right. So I think that's a that's a question that we all need to wrestle with is how do we in, ensure that, in fact, this isn't um, just these aren't just regular investments that we now can call impact investments so we can attract more capital. But really, that capital was going to was going to was going to go to this kind of investment anyway. So the, the question of additionality, I think, is one that, that hangs over some of these what we call the A1 investments, where you have a lot of commercial interest in the investments that are positioned as impact investments. That's, by the way, one of the reasons why we at Omidyar Network are particularly enjoy what we investing in what we call A2 investments. And these are investments where there are not currently other commercial co-investors who see the opportunity as we see it. And we have a, a we would in these cases have a different assessment of risk or a different assessment of the upside potential. So we're willing to invest. 
This happens for a mid-year network more frequently in a context of emerging markets where we're on the ground and we have a team on the ground and we understand the entrepreneurs and we understand the environment. We've made a similar set of investments in the past. So we get really excited about these, what we call these A2 investments and would also encourage others to look more carefully at where can they not only invest for high returns, but where can they look to invest where they can add value beyond just the financial capital? Like what are the things that they can do to enhance the likelihood of that particular investment generating not only outsized return, but, but also outsized impact? So in A2, as you say, there's a premium that you can generate uh, from your special knowledge of perhaps the risks are not as extreme as, as other folks think because you know something, as you said, about either the entrepreneur or the, or the market, um, and therefore you can actually uh, make a good investment that others might not make. Correct, that others might overlook because they're mispricing risks, so to speak. And we, because we have people on the ground, can understand the risk and potential return dynamics and have a greater willingness to invest. So that's one area where we would encourage more investors to think differently about where can they go into areas that are where, where, where there are good, solid investment opportunities, but not a lot of current investment activity. And where can they therefore uh, generate not only those strong financial returns, but create some real additionality in terms of impact? I think that's great. And I, on that piece, I just wanted to jump in and say that I think the Impact Management Project has actually done some really helpful thinking about what are the types of they call it investor contribution, which is very related to additionality, what types of investor contribution are real and meaningful in terms of driving impact if you don't have the flexibility to be able to um, take a concession. And, and they really highlight their engaging actively as well as investing in undersupplied capital markets as, as two strategies. And we see those peppered throughout, you know, an L of our equity really doing both from a private equity context, um, but also even in a public equity context, you know, Goldman talks about the way that the McKnight Foundation uses what they call sweat equity to really get the most out of their endowment dollars and towards their mission uh, to, to tackle climate change, even within their public equity asset allocation. So those two concepts, I think, are, are helpful for folks as they're thinking about, okay, well, where can I, in addition to, um, in addition to Matt's fantastic point around pricing risk appropriately, assessing risk appropriately, where can we really have um, true impact in this uh, market rate return category without foregoing either, you know, the time horizon or returns? Okay, well, let's take the other part because you you may use the word concession. I've been schooled lately in thinking, say, catalytic, not concessionary. Um, and you guys, in <laughs> fact, are are part of a new consortium called the Catalytic Capital Consortium. And this does really take on, I think, where the where the question joined, as it were, because there's a much smaller pool of capital of folks who, as you say, are willing to take a concession in service of catalyzing even larger amounts of of capital. And that's, uh, I think, a, a smaller, but obviously um, essential part of the marketplace. So what are you seeing in that regard? That's absolutely true. There's, you know, the supply of commercial capital vastly has outpaced the supply of subcommercial capital. And that's because not everyone can do it. Um, so really, the, you know, the front lines of catalytic capital are foundations, high net worth families, uh, development finance institutions, and aid agencies, that those are um, not exclusively, but those that are best positioned to be able to bring catalytic capital to the market. Sometimes those folks get kind of almost, I don't know, 
lack of respect in some way that it's not real investing it's sort of quasi philanthropy and it's not serious i think you guys have a different take definitely david um and i think that that is in some ways one of the you know the ripple effects that has come from this tired and troubling trade-offs debate is that you know for a long time those who have engaged in catalytic capital have been dismissed um as as doing sloppy deals um, or essentially doing, you know, philanthropy dressed up as investing. And, um, and you know, and I think that one of the things that's going to be really critical to be able to see not only more catalytic capital flow into the market, um, but also to see that catalytic capital realize its full potential in terms of being able to crowd in commercial investments, which is, you know, one of the ways that it is so essential to the growth of the field is to be able to fight the stigma that you just spoke to around, uh, around what catalytic capital is. Um, instead, be able to um, be able to understand with greater sophistication and rigor the things, the types of impact that cannot be achieved alongside market rate returns. And um, we know, you know, directionally what some of those pieces are um, in terms of the, you know, the role that catalytic capital plays in terms of de-risking deals, new fund managers, sectors. We also see that, you know, catalytic capital can be really critical in, you know, the toughest geographies or reaching some of the the hardest to reach customer segments. And I think that as we become more and more uh, sophisticated and sharp in our ability to articulate exactly what are the edges of these market segments, what are what are the places where catalytic capital is absolutely essential to achieve that type of impact, then we'll be able to deploy it with even more rigor and um, and also um, over time um, really be able to um, eliminate those, I think, antiquated conceptions of the type of capital that's flowing into this part of the market. You mentioned that folks don't want to be the the one to provide the 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 somebody else reaps the reaps the rewards and nobody wants to be the that guy in the in the deal or that player in the deal um there's work to be done to make sure that that's not what's happening i imagine yeah david on, on that yeah I, I i might make i think you're right and i would also make a distinction between multiple investors in a given deal where we see that yes there are very few investors who want to be at the bottom of the capital stack so to speak when it comes to returns um yeah, I make a distinction between individual investments and investing more broadly, where I do think we're seeing more organizations willing to engage and provide catalytic capital. Let me quantify this need for you just a little bit. Uh, if we look at the global commercial capital markets, that is the money that's available, that's seeking, constantly seeking on a daily, hourly basis, highest possible risk-adjusted returns, those capital markets are in the tens of trillions of dollars in terms of size. Right. And those are, we would all say, A, investments, just from a returns perspective. If you go and you look at the other end of the continuum and you say, you say, OK, grants, who's primarily delivering grant capital? And the biggest source of grant capital uh, outside of government is the foundation world and in particular the U.S. foundation world. In that world, you may you the amount of capital deployed as grants every year is in the hundreds of billions of dollars, not tens of trillions, right, but hundreds of billions. And by the way, a lot of that goes to churches and schools and synagogues and that sort of thing. So stuff that's very local, that's not necessarily focused on broader uh, set of, of, of societal, very personal, uh, very valuable, but very personal. So you have on one end of the, this, this um, uh, capital continuum, tens of trillions of dollars 
that's risk-adjusted return maximizing. On the other extent, you've got hundreds of billions of dollars as grant dollars. When you look at what's in between, if you take out the people who are most engaged in that are probably, for example, the, the aid agencies and overseas development agencies. Um, if you take them out and look at non-development agencies providing catalytic capital, my guess is the amount of that capital, which we would call in the B category, is in the, in the, in the low billions. And in some years, when we started out, it feels like it was in the hundreds of millions. So my point is not that one type of capital is better per se than another. We've spent a lot of time here discussing how um, all capital is, is, is critical when we think about social impact. But I do think it's important to highlight that when we look at where the real scarcity of capital is, in our view, there's a tremendous scarcity in, in that, that B category in the concessionary or the catalytic capital front. And that's why we get particularly excited about this, this 3C and other similar initiatives. Um, because I think we need more folks in there. And I think it's incumbent upon them, getting back to a point Robin made earlier, I think uh, even as we get a little frustrated with the people doing B investments as being too readily dismissed as not very good or sloppy investors, I think it's incumbent upon B investors to clearly identify not only what kind of returns they're expecting, but also what kind of social impact they're expecting. If in fact you're gonna accept a concessionary return, to what end are you accepting that return, right? And in Meteor Network, we think about this a lot because investments come to investment committee and it's an A, one or two, and a B, one or two. And the investment professionals are expected not only to articulate a rate of return, but also articulate a very robust um, theory of change and theory of impact. If we do this investment, what is the impact likely to be? And by the way, the more we loosen that financial constraint, the more concessionary element, more of a robust concessionary element there is in that individual investment, the higher our expectation is that they have a very robust explanation of how that investment is going to drive positive social impact. Well, that's, that's interesting. We, we, we joked about impact alpha earlier, but we've always said that the impact alpha can come on both sides. And if you're going to get the high above market uh, financial returns through your impact thesis, that's one case, as you said earlier. But that if you're going to drive outsized impact, that's another kind of impact alpha. So we've always played across that spectrum ourselves. Um, and let me just let you guys have a last word because it sounds like one of the things that you hope to come out of this whole series and this piece of work um, is perhaps a greater appreciation that uh, investors can play in that B class, as you said, that catalytic class. Um, and that maybe there should be a, a greater attention to mobilizing capital there. So is there some kind of uh, call out you want to make to your fellow investors um, about uh, jumping into that, that, that end of the pool? Yeah, why don't, I, why don't I share some thoughts about what we think the implications are for different types of investors who might be listening today? And then Matt, I'll give you the last word. So I think that, you know, to your point, David, this has clear implications for a number of different investors. So for families, absolutely double down on this all too scarce catalytic capital that few are well suited to deploy. You know, as you, you know, you'll hear and see Liesl say um, in her piece in Beyond Tradeoffs, you know, families are poised to bring not only tremendous assets to bear, but also tremendous flexibility. Um, and as we just heard from Matt, you know, the need for catalytic capital is indeed great. And really, you know, families have to be on the front lines of bearing the risks of early stage innovation and fueling impact in the toughest market segments. Um, and so there's a, a clear call to action there. I think for foundations, 
you know, that is also true. It's also the case that I think that when you look at the entire returns continuum, it asks the questions and calls on foundations to more and more activate untapped assets that can make a meaningful difference even in the pursuit of strong financial returns. So we're talking about endowments here. And I think in a world where you can see that there's significant impact that can be achieved alongside um, those commercial returns, then serious philanthropists just can't afford to leave that impact on the table. The Ford Foundation piece from Beyond Trade-Offs with Darren Walker and Roy Swan and Christine Looney um, really calls on their, their peers and says, look, knowing what we know today, seeing the returns continuum, our challenge is to finance more social good than ever before. And we can't do it unless we also tap these, these assets that are seeking commercial returns. And then for institutional investors, my message would be come in off the sidelines. You know, don't be deterred by the fact that some market segments need catalytic capital. Really seek out those market segments where impact goes hand in hand with financial return or even mitigates risk on the horizon. Um, David, to, to your point on, on impact alpha always. You know, and for everybody, for all impact investors, whether they're well-seasoned or joining impact alpha for the first time today, I think you know, our message would be you know, see the full continuum of capital and be intentional where you play. There's no right way to do impact investing. I think that the, the challenge is not only crowding everyone into the big tent, but also empowering and inspiring asset owners to be able to be intentional about where they play and to align their capital with the market segments that are best poised to deliver on their, their unique expectations for risk, return, and impact. And I think one of the things that we're excited about with Beyond Trade-Offs is that it starts to populate the map just a little bit in terms of where do different types of investors play and why. And by bringing those stories to the forefront, I think we're really hopeful that it'll make it easier for new entrants to both understand the market and make really strategic choices for their capital to flow to its best and highest use. Matt, you have the final word. First of all, Robin, that was really an outstanding summary. And, and, and thank you for walking us through the the different capital providers. I, I want to make a couple comments before the wrap. One is of the of the segments, Robin, that you described, let me call out a particular emphasis on the high net worth and ultra high net worth individuals and the broader societal context we're seeing with uh, concern over uh, increased wealth concentration and, and a broad set of, of continued you know, societal challenges. People who are in the position of having uh, uh, significant wealth um, and who want to have impact, and many, many of them do, uh, should in fact avail themselves of all the tools in the toolkit, including, uh, David, coming back to your initial description of having an LLC as well as a, as well as a foundation. And they should be thinking very clearly about what issues they care about, where they want to play, and how, what types of capital they best deploy in service to having the biggest possible impact. And you have certain structures within development agencies and foundations that have been there for decades. Uh, people are coming at this with, with significant wealth and a commitment to impact. They have ultimate flexibility. And I really would encourage folks to look at the entire continuum and figure out where they best want to play. Uh, a second point I, I make here and just underscore is we, it is really exciting to see the overall development growth of the field of impact investing. And, and thanks to you, David, and your team as well for helping drive um, uh, that forward and helping raise critical issues in the overall development of the field. And I'm excited to see the progress we continue to make 
Um, as we look forward and think about what do we need to be thinking about in order to see continued uh, growth and maturation of the impact investing market, I think we do need to focus on impact. I think impact and measuring impact is an area where perhaps we, as a, as a community, have devoted less time and energy than we should. And I think if, if we can get that right, then we deal with some of the criticism around, quote, greenwashing. And we demonstrate the way that different capital types can have a tremendous impact in the world. Uh, and I'm personally quite excited about the future here. I think we at the Amidiar Network are uh, delighted to have been uh, part of this impact investing journey uh, over the last decade plus. We're delighted to have the ability to uh, continue to contribute our learnings to the advancement of the field. And uh, again, we're grateful for, David, you giving us this opportunity to engage on this set of issues. And we're also very grateful to those who have engaged with us and written articles around uh, where they play on the con returns continuum and how they seek to have a biggest impact in the world. So uh, really appreciate your leadership. And we were delighted to uh, spend some time with you this morning. Terrific. Well, thank you, Matt. I wanted to say one thing on your on your earlier point, which is it's interesting that as you uh, get to beyond trade-offs, that one of the to action is for folks maybe not to think of that concession, as it were, in terms of a trade-off, but in fact, in terms of service to the mission and the, and the causes and the issues that they most care about and where they can have the most impact, as you say. So thank you, both of you, Matt Bannock and Robin Stephan of the Omidyar Network. I think you've, you've articulated where you started, which was invest along the returns uh, uh, continuum and um, mobilize all kinds of capital for the, for the big challenges we all face. So I thank, thanks to both of you. Thank you, David. That's going to do it for this first episode in Return on Investments special series, Beyond Tradeoffs. Find more at impactalpha.com and on Twitter at impactalpha. We'll continue the conversation on Impact Alpha's subscribers-only Slack channel. Join the Beyond Tradeoffs channel to discuss this and other episodes in the series. This podcast has been a production of Impact Alpha in collaboration with Omidyar Network. Special thanks, as always, to our technical producer, Isaac Silk. Thanks, Isaac. From New York, I'm Brian Walsh, head of Impact for the fintech company LiquidNet. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you, in some sense of the word, next time.